Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Chronic Fatigue and Burnout Recovery Podcast. Today I'm going to be talking about brain health. In the past I have talked about the concept of neuroinflammation, brain inflammation, and today I wanted to go a little bit deeper on the topic. I've actually split this into two separate episodes which I will be recording. So this first episode we're going to be looking at brain injuries specifically and a concept relating to neuroinflammation which is called glial cell priming. Now at the moment you may never heard of that, you may never, you may not know if it's relevant to you, or you, you may not even know what it means and that's okay. That's why the episode is here so that you can understand it better. And then in the next episodes we'll talk about some interventions like how you can support your body if you've had a brain injury or if you have neuroinflammation generally which I'm assuming most people with chronic fatigue or chronic illness do have some form of neuroinflammation um, and how you can f- support glial cell priming specifically if you suspect that um, your glial cells may be primed which is what I'll be talking a little bit more about today. So where I wanted to start with this episode is also just to say that this is something I'm seeing more and more in my practice. As one of my mentors says, you know, there's certain things in complex cases which unless you know what to look for or you go looking for them, you don't see them. But when you start looking, you see them everywhere. And that is definitely my experience working with brain injury and glial cell priming. I don't know if it's necessarily because I've been working with a lot more male clients this year and generally speaking, and this is stereotyping, you know, men tend to play contact sports. They tend to be a little bit more susceptible to things like concussion just through the nature of their activities. So I've taken on a lot of clients this year who've had a concussion or um, some sort of brain injury. Not only men, I will say, um, women as well. And therefore, I've just become a lot more interested in this area. And through working with these clients and creating content for these clients, I think it's also important to share this information with my wider audience and, and bring this on your radar because it's something that I have been reflecting on and how it relates to me and in my own journey and my, my health in general and um, you know how it relates to clients as well. And I guess the one thing we know for sure is you know your health, the quality of your health determines the quality of your life and you know having a brain which functions properly is just so important for quality of life. So we should all be thinking about absolutely everything we can do to optimize brain health and um, whether that is someone who is a chronic illness or just experiencing a little bit of intermittent dysfunction um, I think it's really important that we understand all the things we can do to be optimizing brain health in the longer term. So that's really what I wanted to lead with in terms of this episode today. Um, I've highlighted this idea of brain injury which I'll, I'll talk a little bit more about in a moment but even if you don't have a brain injury or you, you don't think you've had a brain injury because sometimes people have them and they don't even know that that's what happened, I would really suggest that you listen to this episode because if anything, you're just going to learn more about your brain 
or it may help to reveal some blind spots you have. So if you're somebody who experiences challenges with your mood, if you experience somebody who um, has brain fog, or perhaps you feel like you just need to sleep more so than the average person, or if you get fatigue that gets worse when you use your brain, so cognitive tasks are very tiring for you, or you get fatigue um, that, that has gotten worse since you were in an accident or an injury, or maybe you had an illness. So I guess the one we're coming up against a lot these days is um, long COVID. People who had um, an illness, a viral infection, COVID, and they've never felt the same since. And there's obviously lots of different mechanisms by which COVID impacts the body, but one of the things that it can do is impact the brain. So perhaps you feel like since you had COVID, your brain just doesn't function as it should, or I mean, it could doesn't have to be COVID, it could be anything. It could be um, a gastro bug, or it could be mold exposure, like I had. Um, I believe mold really impacted my brain significantly. So if any of that resonates with you, then this episode is worth listening to. Um, other reasons why you might want to listen might just be if you have an overall sense of slowness. You feel slow to speak, slow to think, slow to move, difficulty with memory, difficulty finding words. These are all clues that your, your brain may be inflamed and it may need a little bit of love and care. So as I mentioned, this episode is going to be a little bit about explaining the concepts and the mechanisms, and then I'll do a part two where we'll talk about interventions, how we can support ourselves, because it's all very well understanding what's wrong, but it's a bit miserable understanding what's wrong and then not really knowing that we can change it or not really knowing how to change it. So part two, we'll look at how we can address these things and how we can support your brain to function better. But let's start with brain injury and just answering the question, what is a brain injury? So a brain injury refers to any damage or trauma that occurs in the brain. And brain injury can result in temporary damage or it can result in a permanent disruption to the normal functioning of the brain, which is what we're really going to be thinking about here. So brain injuries can range from mild to severe, um, and they can have varying effects on the individual's physical, cognitive, and emotional well-being. And brain injuries can occur due to several causes, and I've broken these down into two categories. So category one is a traumatic brain injury, a TBI, and that terminology may or may not be familiar to you. But this is a type of brain injury that is caused by an external force or an impact to the head. And that could be a fall where you hit your head, perhaps you're in a motor vehicle accident, it could be a, a sports-related injury. Um, you know, with clients, for example, maybe somebody played rugby or they fell off their bike and they hit their head. Or even perhaps you were physically assaulted and you took blows to the head, whether that was know, in a sport like boxing, for example, um, or, you know, through some sort of other aggressive assault, or traumatic assault as well. So concussions may be the end result of a head trauma, but you don't have to have a concussion to sustain a traumatic brain injury. We don't necessarily have to lose consciousness. So that's important because sometimes people think if they weren't concussed, there wasn't a problem. 
but there, there can be issues further down the line. Sometimes the symptoms only start to manifest many, many years later. Then the other type of brain injury is the acquired brain injury. And that's a brain injury that occurs after birth. So it's not hereditary or congenital, but it might be something like a stroke, for example. It could be some sort of infection which impacted the brain. It could be oxygen deprivation. So for example, somebody had a near death experience, they almost drowned, or they went into cardiac arrest. That could potentially cause a brain injury or tumors or even toxic exposure. And so here, when I think of toxic exposure, and I think of my own case and some of the cases I work on as well, I think of mold and mold mycotoxins. So we know that mold mycotoxins can cross the blood-brain barrier, which is the barrier between the blood and the brain. Um, and that and mold mycotoxins can impact the brain. Whether we would class this as an injury, I say in air quotes, I'm not 100% sure, but I would always kind of be having that on my radar as I converse with clients about their case and the health of their brain. If somebody does have a mold exposure, I'm thinking about how that's impacting their health and the health of their brain. So now maybe just entering into a deeper discussion about neuroinflammation, so brain inflammation and brain injuries. And it would seem very logical that if somebody has a brain injury, they would generate some form of neuroinflammation, whether that is acute or chronic. So neuroinflammation refers to the inflammation in the brain and the spinal cord. And I have done a previous episode on neuroinflammation, which is episode 31 of this podcast, which you may choose to listen to. I talk a little bit more, um, or I use a different framework. I use the psychoneuroimmunology framework to talk about neuroinflammation. Whereas in this episode, I'm going to talk about things a little bit differently. So it's definitely worth listening to both. You may even just want to pause this episode and listen to that one and come back to this one or, or vice versa. Um, but if you haven't already listened to episode 31. But it's important to understand that sometimes neuroinflammation can be really beneficial. And acute neuroinflammation is self-protective. It's a natural immune response that happens when there's an infection or an injury. And it actually helps to protect the, the brain as a whole when there are short-term insults to the brain and to the body. However, chronic neuroinflammation, neuroinflammation that isn't able to complete and resolve, becomes problematic. And it basically underpins all disease pathophysiology. So if you have some sort of chronic illness, you can probably assume that you have to some degree neuroinflammation. And this is what I talk about in episode 31. And the thing about neuroinflammation is that if it is chronic, if it is ongoing, if it is not able to resolve over time, it can become progressive. And then it can start to cause brain damage and dysfunction to the neurons and the other cells in the brain. And this further contributes to disease over time. So when we're seeing people with severe brain or cognitive dysfunction, like people with dementia, people with multiple sclerosis, people with Parkinson's, those are not things that somebody suddenly just developed. Those are um, imbalances that have been developing over years and decades due to neuroinflammation that was not ever allowed to resolve for whatever reason. 
So this is one of the reasons why I think it's really important to highlight we have to look after our brains because if we're not looking after our brains and if we're not doing absolutely everything we possibly can to allow this neuroinflammation to resolve, then we can end up with more or worsening conditions over time. So chronic neuroinflammation may be a consequence of a brain injury. There's obviously lots of reasons why someone would develop neuroinflammation, but brain injury is one of those possible reasons. And when we develop neuroinflammation, it slows down the conduction of nerve impulses. We've got basically the brain's immune system, are so it's so busy, it's occupied with addressing the inflammation that it's not maintaining the health of the synaptic cleft. And when nerve impulses are transmitted, and that means that nerve impulses slow down. And there's multiple different reasons why we develop cognitive symptoms with neuroinflammation, but ultimately this slowing down of the nerve impulses, decrease in energy production for the brain due to the inflammation results in fatigue, poor mental endurance, brain fog, losing words, difficulty finding thoughts, many, many different symptoms. So clinically, it can show up as follows. Mild neuroinflammation may be things like brain fog, so just like hazy thoughts, struggling to recall, maybe just a noticeable variation in mental speed. So sometimes you can feel quite sharp and maybe sometimes you feel not so sharp. Reduced brain endurance, so you can do things, but you can't do them for as long as what you used to do. And it's important to distinguish between loss of endurance and loss of function. So loss of endurance means we can still do things, but we just lack stamina. Loss of function is what we'll touch on when we talk about glial cell priming, where we're just actually struggling to even do things at all, like losing words, slurring speech, difficulty standing and balancing, that's loss of function. Whereas loss of endurance might just be we can stand, but we get tired if we stand too long. Or um, if we're talking a lot, we may start to lose our words, etc. Mild neuroinflammation can also look like brain fatigue after exposure to specific chemicals or scents or pollutants. It can also look like brain fatigue after an exposure to a certain food. So you you eat meal, for example, has some gluten in and you react to the gluten and then you have brain fatigue. When we touch on glial cell priming, it's a little bit different in that we start to lose function after exposure to pollutants or specific foods. It's not just a fatigue, it's a loss of function. So that's an important thing to distinguish, but I haven't got to glial cell priming just yet. So that's mild neuroinflammation. And I think a lot of people with chronic fatigue will resonate with those symptoms. Moderate neuroinflammation is like a chronic ongoing sickness behavior. And I think I would have spoken about this in episode 31. It's been a while since I recorded that episode, so I can't remember the details exactly. But I talked about this idea of when we're sick and we have the flu, how do we feel? We feel fatigued, we feel achy, we feel low in mood, lacking in motivation. Maybe we need to sleep more. We are experiencing changes in appetite. 
So when we have the flu, we do enter a state of neuroinflammation because that's protecting the brain from the viral infection. But when we're talking about chronic neuroinflammation, we have these flu-like symptoms all the time. So chronic depression that doesn't go away. Inability to concentrate for long periods of time. Needing to sleep, needing large amounts of sleep just to function day to day. Chronic fatigue, loss of motivation, loss of appetite, um, and also struggling to be physically active, which I think a lot of people with chronic fatigue experience. So that's moderate neuroinflammation. It's more the mild neuroinflammation may be a little bit more like intermittent. It comes and goes. There's specific triggers, but when we modulate the triggers, we can kind of feel okay. Then we have the moderate neuroinflammation, where it's just like continuously feeling this like sickness behavior syndrome, those flu-like symptoms. And then finally, we have severe neuroinflammation. So, you know, for the most part, I don't see people with severe neuroinflammation in my practice. I think by the time somebody is coming up against severe neuroinflammation, they're probably seeing a neurological specialist, which which is a shame because there's probably a lot I could do for them. But um, this is people experiencing dementia, personality or behavior changes, like extreme confusion and disorientation, difficulty speaking, trembling, tremors, um, seizures, involuntary twitching, coma even. So If somebody is at the stage where they have severe neuroinflammation, they are very, very unwell. They're they're not coming to a functional medicine, nutritional therapist. They're they're seeing a neurological specialist. Um, So I don't tend to see those people in my practice. But some of you listening to this episode may have loved ones with dementia or loved ones who are very unwell and you actually resonate with some of those symptoms of the severe neuroinflammation, this might still be interesting for you to listen to in case there's anything that you can do to support them. And also understanding that if we don't address the mild inflammation, it becomes moderate inflammation. And if we don't address the moderate inflammation, it can become severe neuroinflammation over time. So we must look after the health. Of the brain. So these are all examples of neuroinflammation. However, we can have neuroinflammation on its own and we can have neuroinflammation and with glial cell priming, which is much more likely where there has been a brain injury. So I've previously done an episode on neuroinflammation. Therefore, Where I want to kind of go now with the rest of this episode is to focus on the concept of glial cell priming because it is relevant to people with brain injuries. But even if you don't know you have a brain injury, it's very much worth listening to the rest of this episode anyway because it may shed some light on some things that you're experiencing that you haven't necessarily thought about in the way that I'm going to explain. So let's start to understand glial cell priming. So neuroinflammation involves the activation of the brain's immune system. I think that includes the microglia and the astrocytes, and I spoke a little bit about those in episode 31. And what I want you to know is that only 10% of the brain cells are neurons, and the remaining 90% of the brain cells are glial cells, so immune cells. And the brain's immune system is very different to the 
immune system of the rest of the body, or shall I call it the systemic immune system. So the immune system of the rest of the body is constantly turning over immune cells. We can make immune cells in our bone marrow, we can release them into circulation, and then they can do their job, and then eventually they can get broken down, and then they get degraded from the body. But the brain's immune system is different, and it has a fixed number of immune cells, and therefore we have to look after the brain immune system very, very carefully. So the glial cells are the immune cells of the brain. And certain situations, for example, in the case of a brain injury, they can become permanently activated, or in the case of glial cell priming, they become permanently primed. And what this means is that usually these cells exist in a resting state. So they're neither pro-inflammatory or anti-inflammatory, but when they're primed, they get permanently switched on. And when they're permanently switched on, they can either be pro-inflammatory, which is known as being in an M1 state, or they can be anti-inflammatory, which is known as an M2 state. So one for pro-inflammatory, two for anti-inflammatory, and at rest we would call it M0, M0. Once the glial cells are primed, their structure is changed forever. They can never go back to an M0 state. They can only be M1 or M2. In other words, they can only be pro-inflammatory or anti-inflammatory. And so essentially what's happening in this scenario is the brain's immune system becomes permanently activated and permanently switched on. It cannot be turned off, but we can change the nature of the activation. We can make it pro-inflammatory or we can make it anti-inflammatory depending on diet and lifestyle and um, supplement choices. So this is really important because it means that once a glial cell is primed, it's something that we need to manage lifelong. So if you are someone who is experiencing fatigue and you have primed glial cells, you may need to be extra judicious with your self-care long-term. And the reason why I feel it's really important to share this is I think there's so much confusion about what recovery looks like. And depending, you know, I don't actually really follow many recovery accounts or other accounts relating to my profession online, um, I just find it's it makes everything a little bit noisy and I like to keep my head clear and focused on what I'm doing. But what I gather just from speaking with clients and other people is there, there may be this idea that you do a brain retraining program and then you are like, you're, you fix the mind-body connection and you are healed. And you can do whatever you like and live your life freely moving forward forever. And I have absolutely no doubt that that is true for some people. But what I also think is that it's not true for all people. And there are some people who may have had a brain injury, who may have chronic fatigue, who may be diagnosed with chronic fatigue syndrome, who may have primed glial cells that will, that may have to work lifelong at doing everything in their power to maintain the health of their brain. And they may not have as much flexibility in terms of 
you know, what they can eat or how hard they can push their body physically with exercise. That doesn't mean they can't exercise. It's just they maybe need to avoid overtraining. There may be supplements that they, they choose to take lifelong to support the health of the brain and the brain antioxidant system. So I think it's really important to understand that everybody is operating on a spectrum of what they need to be well. And you've got some people who just need to do some mind-body work and they get fantastic results. You get some people who need to do like a little bit of functional medicine work, a little bit of mind-body work, and they get great results. And then you also get people who really have to work very hard to manage their health long term. And I find that this understanding of the glial cells and the glial cell priming really helps people to, at least it helps people to feel a little bit validated when they still maybe have to be on a ketogenic diet and they still have to be taking their supplements and perhaps being told all they need to do is just have more discipline with their brain retraining. You know, this model, I think, really helps to validate these people and why they need to just work harder than other people at their health. And I do think that the brain retraining is really important. It's one of the ways in which we exercise the brain, which is what I'll be talking a little bit more about in next in the next episode. And reducing stress is so important for the glial cells, which is what I'll talk about in the next episode as well. So I do think that that whole, all the mind-body options which are now available out there are fantastic. But it also, I also think it's really important for people to understand that we need to have a well-rounded approach and we need to be supporting the glial cells from all angles if this is um, potentially something that, you know, that's challenging for you. So I've gone on a little bit of a tangent there, but what I was saying is that once the glial cells become primed, they need to be managed lifelong. And in the case of chronic cognitive decline or dysfunction, your pro-inflammatory M1 cells are hyperactive and the dampening anti-inflammatory M2 cells tend to be a little bit more suppressed. And so this shifts the inflammatory state of the brain as a whole, or sometimes we can have just a specific region of the brain which is impacted and that might be because the brain injury was impacting that specific reason. So somebody hits their head near their frontal lobe, maybe the frontal lobe will have primed glial cells, but the rest of the brain is okay. Obviously, there's different parts of the brain that can be impacted. But then in some cases, we can also have global neuroinflammation. The whole brain is being impacted, and those people are going to find their recovery journey a lot more challenging because there's so much dysfunction happening in so many different areas. But ultimately, the priority for clinical intervention is to activate those anti-inflammatory M2 glial cells and inhibit the pro-inflammatory M1 glial cells. And this is what I'll be talking about a little bit more when we get to the, the next episode in the series. So the reason why I'm talking about all of this now is because brain injury can be a common cause of the phenomenon known as glial cell priming. That doesn't mean that all brain injuries may prime the glial cells. But if I'm working with a client and they've hit their head or they've had a concussion or they've been in a car accident, I'm holding space for the fact that this is a glial cell priming case. And I'm probably going to be riding them very hard and letting them get away with a whole lot less in terms of 
um, the flexibility with their diet and some of their lifestyle practices. It's also important to understand that symptoms can be delayed for even 20 years after an injury. So, I mean, if you think what you were doing 20 years ago, you might not necessarily tie it to what's going on now, but it could be if you were in, maybe you were just rear-ended 20 years ago, it wasn't a big deal, nobody was injured, there was a little bump, you kind of just got on with your life, but um, that could be something that's impacting you now. And it's really difficult to stay safe for sure, but I think it's important to hold space for the possibility especially when we're working with complex and chronic cases where we're just trying to do absolutely everything possible to help the person be well again. So incidents happen, they get forgotten about, and then we don't necessarily tie up all the, connect all the dots and realize that the reason why we don't feel well now has got to do with something that happened 20 years ago. It's also worth understanding that glial cells prime with age so you could have had a bump on the head many years ago that may not have caused any issues. Then time goes on, you're aging, you're generating a little bit more oxidative stress and inflammation in your body, and then you get a secondary infection. So that's a virus, a parasite, a tummy bug, a bacterial infection, and then all of a sudden there's this massive trigger for this inflammatory cascade, and your brain has never felt the same since. So that's also a possibility. So in addition to brain injury, glial cell priming can also be caused by a stroke, which I would class as a brain injury anyway, to be fair, hemorrhage as well. But chronic stress and trauma and PTSD, infections that get into the brain and then aging due to the increase in oxidative stress and inflammation and just general changes in the immune system that happens as we age. So... I'm talking about this and you're probably wondering, is this relevant to me? Is this an issue for me? And unfortunately, there are no reliable tests for brain injury and glial cell priming outside of research settings. So I've had clients with concussion. They said, oh, but I had a brain scan. I was told everything was normal. And MRIs may appear normal apart from something known as white matter hyperintensities, which are normalized as signs of aging. So when I'm doing a case workup with a client, I'm considering several different things. First of all, symptoms. If somebody has got chronic sickness behavior symptoms, that's a little red flag for me. So chronic depression, inability to concentrate, needing more sleep, feeling fatigued, unable to work for a full day, low motivation, loss of appetite, struggling to be physically active and struggling with sensory input like movement, crowds, light sensitivity, sound sensitivity, EMF sensitivity. Those are all little red flags. We also consider the severity of symptoms. So intermittent symptoms, maybe there is some neuroinflammation going on there, but it's probably more more just um, a bit of neuroinflammation, but not necessarily priming. Does the person lose function for hours or days at a time? Or is the disturbance just a little bit mild to moderate loss of endurance for a short period of time? Because when there is severe dysfunction versus loss of endurance, like I discussed a little bit earlier in the episode, 
then that can be a little flag that the glial cells may be primed, especially if it's small exposures, like you eat some gluten and you just lose function, or you experience, um, you smell some sort of chemical stimulus and you just completely lose function, then we know that those are um, big warning signs. We also want to consider what makes someone feel better and what makes someone feel worse. So someone can have neuroinflammation without extensive glial cell priming, but we will all have a certain degree of glial cell priming, and obviously this gets worse as we age, especially if we're not looking after our health. But the neuroinflammation may become excessive and may present as small triggers causing a loss of function, as I previously discussed, so loss of function when eating certain foods or exposure to certain chemicals or sensitivity to alcohol or just struggling to function without adequate sleep or loss of cognitive function like when you get the flu you're slurring your words and you you just like incoherent that's a sign of glial cell priming and they can also just be not necessarily like a loss of function but just this chronic low-grade sickness behavior especially in people who are young like in their 20s and 30s Nobody should be feeling like that. That can also be a sign of glial cell priming. Then other things that I'm looking for is just the case history. Like what's going on there? Is there a known accident, head injury or concussion? So I have that question on my intake form. Did the individual play contact sports? So for example, I'm asking, did you play rugby? You know, if you're they're a cyclist, did you fall off your bike? Did you ever get in an accident? So I'm um, looking for possible head injuries there. I'm just asking, did you ever hit your head? Um, has the interval had a, had a stroke or a brain hemorrhage? Do they have a high ACE score? So adverse childhood experiences score. If somebody has a high ACE score, I'm understanding that there's a lot of trauma probably that that person has sustained. If they were in a physically abusive household, were they ever hit or kicked in the head? And um, just kind of understanding the role or the impact of PTSD on glial cell priming. So factoring that into the, the clinical assessment. Does the individual have a history of autoimmunity in their family? Have they got a diagnosed autoimmune condition? Because we know once somebody has one autoimmune condition, they are at risk of developing a second autoimmune condition. And I'm thinking, could this person be susceptible to neurological autoimmunity? Then other things to consider is does their mother or do their siblings have autism or are there any developmental disorders in the family? Did their mother have an infection during pregnancy? So again, this will be something that impacts and primes the glial cells. And then there are also risk factors to consider. So for example, if somebody is diabetic and they hit their head, the chances of experiencing glial cell priming may be higher. If they're a smoker or they're exposed to cigarette smoke, if they had some sort of pre-existing inflammatory bowel condition or an inflammatory diet, if they were anemic, if they had a previous brain trauma, if they were low in antioxidants, which is classic when someone has mold, or if there's any kind of like vascular inflammation, these are risk factors that will make someone much more susceptible to primed glial cells. So you know, a diabetic who's living in a smoky home with a poor diet and um, is anemic, that person is in an accident, they're much more likely to sustain a lot more inflammation to their brain 
than somebody who is eating really well, um, very fit, no issues with anemia or oxygenation, etc. So just as an example here, you know, a child maybe who's growing up in a household with parents that smoke, they eat a diet high in processed food, um, they have undiagnosed anemia, you know, maybe they're, I don't know, vegan, they're not getting enough B12, they play rugby at school, um, they hurt their head a few times maybe even. And this may be something that's completely asymptomatic for years, but they always kind of feel like a little bit low in mood, a little bit low in energy, a little bit low in motivation. And it's kind of simmering in the background. So it's sort of that like chronic sickness behavior, but just low level. They need to sleep a lot, maybe more than their peers. And then they get a tummy bug um, in their 30s. And all of a sudden, everything just escalates. They're chronically fatigued, they're depressed, they need to sleep 12 hours a day. That's an example of the glial cells being primed, perhaps in childhood, but the secondary infection from the infection or the tummy bug or whatever it could be, the mold exposure, um, that just sets off um, the scale in terms of the neuroinflammation. And then we've got to bring that back under control again. So that's pretty much the most part what I wanted to say about the glial cell priming and the neuroinflammation. I thought maybe I would just wrap up here by reflecting on my own case. I've been thinking a lot about my own case as I, as I work with this material with my clients. And when I think back across my lifetime, I've hit my head so many times, but it's never been serious. So I've never been in a car accident. I never played contact sports at school. I've never had a concussion or anything like that. But there have been lots of little things that have happened. So I fell backwards off a fence onto a concrete slab when I was about six years old or seven years old. And I assume I must have just hit my head. Just playing in the swimming pool, doing somersaults and then hitting my head on the side of the pool. I remember standing up once in the gym that was sort of, there was a stretching area, but it was like under this metal staircase. And I stood up too quickly under the staircase and I hit my head. Um, and then I also had stitches on my chin when I was climbing up a slippery rock and I whacked my chin on the rock and had to have stitches. So again, there would have been some sort of, you know, hit to the head at that point in time. So lots of what I would, what I would call insignificant wax across a lifetime, but one does have to wonder what the possible impact might be. And also, you know, what were the other risk factors that I had at the time? So something I'm still not really clear on is regarding the mold. Um, and especially if mold mycotoxins will impact glial cell priming or, or to the extent that they impact glial cell priming. We know that mycotoxins can cross the blood-brain barrier and they impact the microglia and cause inflammation. And if the brain was already primed, so if you're somebody who is sort of had a concussion and then you have a mold exposure, the exposure to the mold could be a secondary hit. But what I'm unclear about is whether or not the microglia in themselves would prime the brain. And, um, you know, there's lots in, of bad things, basically, that mycotoxins do to the body. They reduce oxidative stress. So, you know, that makes the brain and the nervous system more susceptible to damage. They impact inflammation in the brain. So, that, you know, they are a trigger for neuroinflammation. They can impair, impair neuroplasticity and that can contribute to cognitive dysfunction and depression and anxiety and mental health issues. Um, and they also compromise the integrity of the blood-brain barrier. 
So they can cross over into the brain and they can be neurotoxic to neurons. So there's a lot of bad things that mycotoxins do to the brain. And in my own case, I kind of don't know if the way that I was impacted or have been impacted is due to priming or not. But um, these are just my thoughts, is that I know when I expose myself to specific triggers, I'm most affected in the brain. Even though, like even throughout my whole chronic fatigue journey, there were obviously times when my body, or my whole body was just exhausted. But often I would say it feels like um, I'm, I'm sick from the neck up. Like even when I was exercising, sometimes my body would feel really strong and capable but then after doing any sort of exercise, I would get brain symptoms. So that brain fog, it was one of the first symptoms that I started to experience at the very, very beginning of my chronic illness experience. And it's definitely more of a problem at times in my cycle when estrogen is lower. And so estrogen can be a protective anti-inflammatory for the brain. So What's really important here to understand is the brain is highly susceptible to oxidative stress. It has a poor antioxidant system, generally. And then the microglia are responsible for making antioxidants, but those can come depleted when the brain is inflamed. So the biggest trigger for the brain fog that I have experienced is when I exercise. And I suspect that's due to oxidative stress from exercise. And at the lowest point in my fatigue experience, you know, even walking at times was really challenging. Obviously, you, you know, you have good days and you have bad days. And I'm, you know, I was thinking when estrogen was at its lowest and I had a hormonal migraine, I probably wouldn't have even left the bed very much except to use the bathroom but then there were other times when I could do some gentle walking so you know things are variable um but I was very nutritionally depleted due to chronic diarrhea and this combined with mold mycotoxins meant that my endogenous antioxidant reserves were very very low so we've got all these inflammatory triggers and then on the other side we've got all of these things which are depleting the body's antioxidants so part of my journey has been to replenish those antioxidant reserves. I think that's when I finally started taking glutathione, where that I really noticed a difference with that. But also building up my exercise tolerance very slowly so that I could exercise more and more and generate less oxidative stress. And now I'm in such a different place compared to when I was at my lowest I exercise every single day, whether that's going to the gym or swimming, and I'm walking at least 8,000 steps a day, sometimes even double that. So I am very physically active now. But even still at times when I do something that really pushes me that little bit extra, I feel it in my brain the most. And what makes sense to me at this point in time with the knowledge I have so far is that maybe, come on, say for sure, I have a certain degree of glial cell priming and remember that we all have this to a certain extent as we age anyway and when I am experiencing inflammation from exercise I get a secondary hit from time to time and this is not all the time because now I'm generating less inflammation with exercise I have much better adapted antioxidant systems therefore I can do more and more 
But if I was to go and do like a brand new workout and lift really heavy and push my body really hard, yes, my body would be tired, but I think I would experience a bit of cognitive dysfunction alongside this. So in a way, this theory that I have and the understanding has been somewhat reassuring because it's moved me from being constantly suspicious about mold, like have I got rid of all the mycotoxins or um, just between us, you and me and the listeners of this podcast like my gym is moldy and they have literally got an area where there was water damage in the winter and there's black visible mold on the walls and um it's been there for at least six months probably seven or eight months and so there was a time when i was going to the gym and i really wanted to keep on going to the gym and sometimes i would feel better and sometimes i would feel worse but then i was thinking Do I need to be worried about the mold, the visible mold in the gym? And now just being able to understand this kind of glial cell priming, I'm like, well, it's probably going to be okay. You're only there for maybe three hours a week. Um, Not all in one go, but three times for one hour. And you have much better strength and much better antioxidant reserves now. So it's much more about me understanding how I manage the oxidative stress versus being afraid of, the mold and also not kind of beating myself up thinking oh I should do more mind body work I haven't cracked the trauma nut yet or whatever I might say to myself and it's just understanding it's it's not necessarily about trying harder at mind body work or stressing about being moldy it's much more about just understanding that my brain could potentially be susceptible and I say could because this is all theory and supposition and I cannot prove it But then with that understanding, I feel empowered to support my body in the ways that I know work well for me, which is managing the oxidative stress and taking supplements and interventions, which I'll discuss in the next episode. So when we get to part two, which is next week, you're going to learn a bit more about supplements that are beneficial to support the M2 glial cells. And interestingly, even before I arrived at this understanding about my own body and brain, these are also things that I've naturally just found in my journey to be beneficial anyway. So I thought it just might be interesting to bring all of that information together in terms of an understanding that I've developed for myself. And, you know, I believe that this understanding is actually quite empowering, or at least I found it empowering for me personally. It may not be empowering for you. I don't know. But what I've really found helpful is also to explain glial cell priming to the people in my life that matter. So that when I feel a certain way or I'm a little bit sensitive or I need certain things, I can just say, it's my glial cells um, and everybody understands. Um, So I think it's really important just as a side to educate our loved ones about what we're going through. And I know that that's a lot of extra work potentially when you don't feel well. But you can share the resources on my blog and the resources on my podcast with your loved ones so that they can understand um, and that can make the job a little bit easier for you. So this has been a long one. Um, I'm going to wrap up here and say goodbye and let you go. I hope you have enjoyed learning about glial cells today. Watch out for the next episode where we will learn more about what you can do to support your body and your health on your fatigue recovery journey.